Okay, without any further ado, we will go ahead and have uh, Mr. Matthew Steele come forward for the introduction to Ephesians Bible Study, Part 2. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see everybody today. And uh, I do feel somewhat that we've, I don't know, Maybe the enemy does not want us to study Ephesians. Um, some logistical challenges. We had originally wanted the Bible study to start last Sabbath and then ran into some shipping problems with uh, you know, the, getting the books here in time. So we thought, well, well, we'll adjust the schedule and give ourselves plenty of time. And still, not all the books came here in time. So uh, I have, I think, 13, 14 of them here today which uh, that actually might do, <laughs> considering our numbers. Um, but then also, I, I have uh, taken the liberty of, of copying the first two lessons since we are purchasing the books. Uh, I think we're going to be covered on copyright there. Um, so anybody that needs a book, which is hopefully everybody, um, and, uh, or a copy of the lessons, we'll print those out if we, we need some extras for today. Please come see me after services. And we'll be able to uh, share those, and you can start the, this, the Bible study this, this coming week. Um, just a couple of logistical things. We are going, because we had to adjust when we started this, we're going to ask you to study Lessons 1 and 2 this coming week. So Lessons 1 and 2. Doubling up for the first week. I know it's hard. Uh, but I think you'll find this is a very easy Bible study in a certain sense, and we'll get as much out of it as we put into it, which is, of course, the case with any Bible study. Um, so we can go as deep as we want to into Ephesians. The other thing I want to encourage everybody to do, and those online, hopefully, or maybe watching later, that are going to participate in the Bible study, is please come ready to share. Uh, the... The folks that are going to facilitate, myself and then others, uh, we're not going to be bringing all the answers. It is uh, a group Bible study, and we would love for everybody to share ideas, insights, thoughts that you've, you've come up with, um, because that's how we edify one another. So please, uh, please be willing to do that, and uh, we can pass around a microphone for those of us that have quiet voices, which is myself included. I definitely need some amplification, so uh, if you would please be ready to share as I, as I mentioned. So normally, or uh, as I said earlier, I wouldn't probably have had two introductions to Ephesians, but we, we had to change some things uh, for last Sabbath. And um, it might not seem like this uh, short message here is an introduction to Ephesians, but I really think we couldn't have arrived at studying this book at a more important time, a more critical time. And uh, I'll point some of those, those reasons out as we go through this. In Psalm 133, David wrote this. He said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For brethren, brothers, sisters, family, this connected community to dwell together in unity. 
It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Some interesting symbolism in here. It's, he's describing it as being the, the anointing oil that came down upon Aaron when he was set aside as the high priest. That flowed down on his head and, and his beard. You know, and I've often thought about that. You know, when we, we have anointings, don't we, for healing and, and for uh, God's blessing on us in times of trouble and need. I sometimes wonder, man, what would it be like if we poured the oil like, like we poured the oil, like it was poured over Aaron's head, just wash over us, and, and wanting God's blessings to wash over us. And he is saying, David is saying here, that brethren dwelling together in unity is like that, is, is like God's blessing, about this, the symbolism of this oil just running over and, and flowing down on each one of us. And we can be a blessing to one another, can't we? As much as we can be a curse, you know, when we break those bonds of connection and how, how opposite and damaging that is. But we want this dwelling together in unity. Now, of course, it's no accident that I'm at this scripture, is it? Because of what we have seen this week in our country. This country has become fractured and broken apart. There is no dwelling in unity anymore. The complete opposite of this psalm, if you will. The actions in the nation's capital were shocking, were upsetting, angering perhaps, but they were just a foretaste. A foretaste of the strife and division that mankind seems to inevitably descend toward. Isn't it? Our natural condition, we just seem to fall down into this. Strife, division, schisms between brethren. And we know this because it was there at the beginning when Cain killed Abel. At the very beginning, mankind's nature was shown. Of course, all of this political strife that we have now, it, you know, the events this, this last week didn't come out of the blue, did they? They weren't just a surprise in a certain sense that have, that have been preceded by decades of bitter political recriminations between two political parties and even more between these extremist elements of these political parties. And it's decades worth bringing us to this place. And much to the disappointment of the many commentators that I, I listened to, uh, this division was not healed. There wasn't a great coming together. There seemed to be in the moments of that evening when, when the House and the Senate came back together. But very, very quickly, what, what have we seen? Recriminations on both sides 
for why it happened, who caused it to happen, and so on. And I'm not speaking to the validity of any of those arguments, but once again, there was no unity. Now, it might sound like an oversimplification, but I believe at the heart of the divisions of this country is this simple truth. They are no longer bound by the same values and the same common faith. That is at the heart of it. The country is no longer bound together by the same values and the same common faith. There is no unifying understanding that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So few actually really believe that anymore. It's obvious. There is no accountability, no guiding moral principle, no commonly shared or accepted truth. You know, it was interesting. I, I can't remember which reporter it was, but it was a reporter in a major media uh, news channel that was talking about the riots, talking about what happened at the Capitol. That, and, and then they went on to talk about how citizens no longer trusted any of the institutions in the country, regardless of what political side they were on. And they no longer trusted the news media, the print media, the media that is supposed to be our champion for truth, that's supposed to investigate and understand what's really going on and, and be a check on those that are in power. Nobody believes the media anymore. They have lost faith in all of these institutions. And this was a journalist saying this, and I thought it was particularly striking. And it was refreshing to hear a journalist actually admit that. But it's more affirming when we see this in the scriptures. And we've read this so many times. In fact, I, I feel like I, I keep reading this passage, but we keep coming back to this because this is the circumstance that we find ourselves in. In Isaiah 59, verse 14, justice is turned back, righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. You think about that. You think about all of the conspiracy theories on both sides that, that accompanied this last election. How are we to believe anything? Where is the truth in any of this? The internet, the media, the politicians, the nation as a whole is so full of lies, conspiracies, manipulation of truth, complete confusion, just as Isaiah warned us. But why is that? Why have we come to this place? Again, it might seem like an oversimplification, but Isaiah tells us in the preceding verse. He says in verse 13, in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. That's how we get here. It, it's pretty simple, isn't it? 
I remember being a kid and getting into trouble for a little while, and I think a lot of kids do this, lying, right? I got into this, this habit of lying to my parents. Well, who broke that? Well, I don't know. It just did it itself. The cat, the cat, I saw the cat playing with it. You know, my, my brother and sister are little. They're not touching those things. It was me, but I lied. And the more you do it, what happens? the more nobody believes you. And the shocker, the truth that we learn when we're five, six, seven years old is still the truth today, is that we get to a place where there is no truth, where we cannot trust one another, where we cannot trust institutions, because we just have gotten into the habit of lying. Lying. We see it on the nightly news. This is interesting. I was reminded of a, of a statement that John Adams had made regarding the kind of country that he helped form. And uh, I didn't realize that it was from a larger, <clears throat> I think it was a letter. It was either a letter or a, a speech that he made, but I'm pretty sure it was a letter. It was a letter to the Massachusetts militia dated the 11th of October. 1798. And it says, to the officers um, of the uh, first brigade of the third division of the militia of Massachusetts. <clears throat> Gentlemen, I have received from Major General Hull and Brigadier General Walker your unanimous address from Lexington, animated with a martial spirit and expressed with military dignity, becoming your characters and the memorable plains in which it was adopted. While our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world, while she continues sincere and incapable of, of insidious and impious policy, we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned us by providence. That's, it falls a little hard on our ears, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's definitely an older way of, of writing English. But what he's saying is, while we continue to enjoy the benefits that we have in this country, where those benefits are not spread abroad, we, we should be happy and rejoice that, that we find ourselves in such a place. But then he says this, but should the people of America once become capable of that deep uh, simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it is practicing inequity and extravagance and displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity, while it is rioting in rapine or in plunder and insolence or disrespect, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world. And haven't we arrived at that place? We're starting, unfortunately, to arrive at that place. He says, because we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break 
the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Talk about insightful. I talk about an intelligence and an understanding of what he knew they had created and the kind of government and the kind of people necessary for that government to endure. I fear this country has arrived of what John Adams feared. The form of government of the United States will only work when people are moral, when they are religious. Now, it's interesting he uses the word religious. What do you think he meant by religious? I doubt very much he meant Islamic or Buddhist or humanist. I think he used the word religious to capture all of the different Christian beliefs that were then in the country. The Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. The form of government of this country stands on this one foundation. Remove the foundation, and we do see what we're seeing today, don't we? We do see it. Division, lying, falsehood, confusion, anger, violence, fear, distrust in every institution of government. And these conditions lead to more and more what? Suppression of free speech, suppression of individual liberties, and more radical actions on all political sides. They're not turning the temperature down. To continue to bring it up. And I'm afraid that we are making this place that Adam said was a place of rejoicing into a most miserable habitation. I want you to notice, though, I have tried in, in this description to uh, avoid using the language, and maybe it slipped out because it's, it's hard to do, but I've tried to avoid using the language of our country, of our government. Because, yes, we are citizens of this country, but we are citizens of another country. I don't know if you had this same feeling or not, but as I watched the, the news and kind of the, the actions as it played and the, the, the people entering in the capital and and all of that, as it played out, you know, I felt like I was a foreign ambassador in some far-off, unstable country watching another coup attempt or uprising. I, I don't know if you got that feeling. And I, I almost felt like I needed to go and report this to the State Department. I needed to go and tell the king that another country is falling to instability. And that must be, I suppose, what ambassadors have experienced when they've looked out from their embassies in these foreign countries, and, and now we have it happen here. For a moment, I felt like I was an ambassador with concerns 
for the citizens of this country that I was assigned to. But aren't we ambassadors? Aren't we ambassadors from another country to this country? We are ambassadors for Christ. As Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, the God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are ambassadors. And as we look at the circumstances around us, it becomes more and more clear, doesn't it? That we need to reach out and bring this ministry of reconciliation. To bring out to anyone who will listen the only truth that we can know is true. Because man's truth is not true. And the truth is fallen in the streets, but we can bring them the word of God. We are citizens of the heavenly country. This is not the only place that Paul uses this term. He uses this in Ephesians, and we will study it when we get to chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 18. He says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul was an ambassador. We, in the spirit of Christ Jesus, are ambassadors. And we can bring hope. We can bring that truth of God to a world that desperately needs it more and more every time we turn on our television sets. There's something critical, even more critical for us here today as this church body. Even though we're just a small congregation of believers, we are citizens together of a new world. We are citizens of the new world to come, the kingdom of God. We have to remember this vital truth that Paul points out to us in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7. He says that we must stay together. We must strive for the unity of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. That no matter what is going on in the country around us, we have to be together as ambassadors for Christ. We must not be divided amongst ourselves. Because we all come from different backgrounds. And we all come from different political persuasions. And we all have different perceptions of what is going on in the community, in the world. But we are united in Christ. And we cannot, in times like this, allow ourselves to be separated from one another. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you 
to walk worthy of the calling which you have called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring or struggling to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond, or that pledge, that promise of peace that we made to one another. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He is in every single one of us. and He unites us. And how beautiful and pleasant is it that brethren dwell together in unity, bound together through these promises, through the Spirit of Christ Jesus. I really think our Ephesians study could not have come at a better time. Because Ephesians is about this unity. It's about building us together, strengthening us together. And it's a critical time. This book reminds us of the most basic terms that we are new creatures in Christ. That we must walk together in faith. That we are all built upon Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. People in the world that imagine themselves as great leaders... I don't know if you've noticed, but they keep talking about this great reset. Have you heard that term? This great reset. They don't know what a reset is. For two reasons. There's a reset coming when Jesus places his foot on the Mount of Olives and the world trembles at his return. That's a reset. But there's another reset that also comes from Christ Jesus that has happened in each and every one of us, isn't there? We're no longer walking in darkness. We are walking in the light. We have been reset, turning our hearts on our minds to Christ Jesus. And we have this reset button that we should be going around and slapping on anybody that will stand still long enough. We are here to deliver more and more resets of life of reconciliation, being ambassadors for Christ. You know, I don't know if it's a grand conspiracy. I don't know if it's a man-made conspiracy or a satanic conspiracy or a conspiracy not at all, but just as a result of living on this earth and, and sin that causes sickness and death. But the insidious nature of this coronavirus you know, the virus itself or the response to it has been to do what? Fear, yes. But what's worse than that? Isolate. Social distancing. It is an anathema. How good and how pleasant is it for brethren to dwell together in unity? Now, I'm not speaking to any medical necessity for people to stay away from each other when there's a disease. But we have to admit that the outcome of these actions are for people to be more divided than ever. Literally, families cut off from one another. Friends cut off from one another. 
and in parts of the world like we wouldn't believe. Again, I don't know if it's a conspiracy. It doesn't really matter. The end result is division, separation. And when you get that between human beings, it creates suspicion, fear, and fear of the other. Because we're no longer forced to connect and engage with one another and recognize the humanity in one another. And then we have the political divisions in the world around us. We cannot allow those divisions to divide us. Because all of that is going away. We all look for the day when all political parties are gone. There will be one political party. It will be the kingdom of God. And he will rule. And that's what we long for and look for. We must contend for the unity of the faith in the bond of peace to hold on to one another. To seek to connect with one another. Not let go. Remember what Psalm 133 says. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. I hope you'll enjoy this Bible study. I hope you'll get a lot out of it. As I said, I think it's really coming at a very important time. So, lessons one and two for next week.